Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back. So we, uh, we're kicking off our summer conversations uh, this morning with um, Richard Simmons. And uh, we've got a pretty good lineup this summer, which you'll see in The Adventurer. Um, the next two weeks are, are, well, the next two weeks following after the next week is kind of up in the air. So, But um, we'll have everybody from Richard to my friend Greg Helvey, uh, who is an award, Academy Award nominee, um, to uh, people doing campus ministry, um, to uh, uh, people who are uh, involved in sort of the culture and, uh, and how Christianity interacts with that. So that's kind of the idea of these. It gives us a chance during the summer to, to engage in some good conversations. So let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for calling us to this place and uh, for the ministry of uh, Richard and his family and the Center for Executive Leadership. We pray that uh, you would, uh, by God's mercy, continue to use them uh, to lift you up uh, so that uh, all might be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Richard? I'm glad you're here. Good. Uh, it's, it's, it's good to have you here. Uh, this is not the first book you've, you've ever written. Um, your, your background is you are in the, in the business world. You worked for an insurance company, right? That was your business? Insurance broker, 25 years. Yeah. All right. So you were, you were doing that. And then what, what prompted you to lay that aside? Because you were the CEO of your firm, mm-hmm. and you decided God was calling you into a different kind of ministry. Tell us about that call and what it is that you're doing now and have been for several years now. Well, the, uh, the timing of, uh, of leaving or retiring from the insurance business uh, really came because of a number of circumstances. I was doing a lot of teaching and speaking at the time. I, I led two uh, men's Bible studies and I had a real a vision for what I felt like God wanted me to do. I just didn't know when. And what ended up happening was I got married when I was 41. And up until that point, I was able to do ministry and my, my job at the same time. And then I got married, and my wife is right over here. Um, and we had three children fairly quickly, uh, just because, primarily because of my age. And as wonderful as my job was, I was having to travel a good bit. And it was putting a lot of strain, I think, on my wife. And so the, the timing just kind of just was perfect. When my youngest son was born, we had three children in 33 months. And, wow. And then I remember Holly and I, I, I for the first time I shared this, we were at, a, a really, a, we were at the Greenbrier, at this wonderful place at an insurance uh, company meeting. And, I shared with her, and we had not been married long, that I, I just did not see me continuing on this path at some point that I was going to, I was going to change course. And I think it maybe scared her a little bit at first, but then she, I mean, she's a big fan and was, was all behind it. And uh, today it's, uh, as you mentioned, it's the Center for Executive Leadership. Uh, there's nine of us that work there now. We, it's, a, it's a men's ministry. People ask me all the time why. It's men only, and I, I do. I tell them this, and I mean it. I, I think women are a lot healthier than men. Right. Uh, they are much more transparent. Uh, they have much better relationships. Uh, men, we, we hold everything up. Uh, we, we hold our defenses up. And I've been doing that almost 14 years now. So, and I, I really love what I do. Yeah. So uh, your first two books, True Measure of a Man, and uh, the other one is 
a life of excellence uh, and reliable, reliable truth, which is about the validity of the Bible, mm -hmm. and which I feel like is maybe the most important book that I've written. The True Marriage of a Man is uh, really at the heart of, of the work that we do, right. um, and it's, uh, it continues to sell very well. Then I did A Life of Excellence, right. and now this book. Now this book. So, I mean, those, those seem to be uh, all in the vein of what the Center for Executive Leadership does, you know, men, life of excellence, sort of integrating your faith into your everyday life. Um, this one, um, you obviously got some good marketing advice about the title, uh, <laughs> Sex at First Start, Understanding the Modern Hookup Culture. Sex at First Sight. Sex at First Sight, that's yeah. right. F sex at First Sight. Uh, someone sent me a book this week um, that was by Doug Wilson out in Idaho, and it was entitled How to Exasperate Your Wife. <laughs> by the way, whoever that is, I want to know who you are uh, that sent that to me. Uh, but I laughed, because uh, I don't need a book. <laughs> I don't need a book. Um, but it's just, uh, but how did you go from, what, what prompted you to write this book? Well, it was kind of a process. Uh, almost three years ago, I was at a dinner where there was a speaker, and this particular speaker uh, was an ordained Episcopal priest, but he also uh, coached the rugby team of an Ivy League school. I, I won't mention the school. And he was talking, it was a group of men, and he was talking about friendship and relationships and he was then he, he got to talking about his ministry with his with the rugby team and how much he really loved these boys but then he said something that just really kind of got my attention really hit me in a, in a powerful way he said listen to these young men talk about their girlfriends or really not their girlfriends just talking about their sex lives he said you would think they were describing a double x-rated movie and then he said this, and this is what really got me. He said, I fear if something doesn't change, we're going to lose this next generation of kids. And I really shuddered because I didn't know what he meant by lose, but I realized I have, I have three children in this generation that he's referring to. So that got my attention. And then my daughter, who is over here, um, went to a camp, a Christian camp, and she had a counselor who was going to be an upcoming senior uh, in college, and they were 15 years, she was 15 years old at the time, and at this camp, uh, during, the, they had time where they would discuss just their various issues, and one of the issues they talked about was sex. And I, met, I had a chance to meet this uh, counselor, and she was just beautiful and delightful, a wonderful young lady. And she shared very transparently with the girls that she had been involved in what's called a friends with benefits relationship uh, while in college. And I don't know if you know that term, but it, it is very pertinent to the, the title of the hookup culture. And you may not know that term, but the bottom line, this girl was having a sexual relationship with a guy they had no commitment, there wasn't any romance, they were just kind of friends and they might you know, go play tennis together and then go have sex. And the counselor told my daughter and the other girls, she said, don't go down this road, it is a dead end path, it's full of guilt and shame. I'm very grateful that she shared that, but it, I mean, it just, again, it really got my attention. And then finally, um, I read a book by Dr. Donna called The End of Sex, where she had done a very uh, thorough uh, research of uh, 
what's going on in college life. She interviewed 2,500 college students and she did all these surveys and she wrote this book about the hookup culture. It's very lengthy. Mm -hmm. And so after that, and I kept hearing about what's going on with college students and just the, the, uh, how the depression rate among college students today has risen so dramatically. And I just thought, you know, I need to write a book that's easy to read, that teenagers can read, college students can read, their parents can read. And so if, you, if, if anybody really asked me why, I would say I did it for my kids and their generation and the parents really to be just more informative because of what I found is just kind of like me, parents are kind of clueless to what really goes on, particularly when I say college life, particularly where you have those who want to be, who want to have an active social life. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, it's not to say every college student is involved in this hookup culture, uh, but those who really want an active social life, particularly in the Greek system, that's where it's most prevalent. It seems, I mean, this has happened very quickly. I'm not that old, uh, but, but this really wasn't happening when, when I was an undergraduate. And then uh, some of you have probably read I Am Charlotte Simmons by Tom Wolfe. Right. And the reaction to that was, this can't possibly be the way that it is. Yeah. And so what do you say to folks who think, you know, I mean, is, it, is, it, is this just sort of a small group of people that are ruining it? for, Or, or is this problem wider? Is it not just a college student issue, but is it a cultural issue? Yeah, I, I definitely think it is cultural, but it's, it has spilled over into the colleges. Uh, I, one of the things that I have done is I have had conversations with some college students, some who've read the book, one, I read, one who'd read the manuscript before it had even come out, uh, just to try to get a feel for, you know, is this really accurate? Is this really happening? And one of the things that I'm finding is that it's a reality on almost every college, except, and as I put in the book, and I got this from uh, uh, Dr. Freitas' uh, research, is conservative Christian colleges, uh, you really don't see this, but pretty much every other college is prevalent. I talked to a man recently, and he discussed this with his daughter, who is at a, I don't like to mention the colleges, but a, a fairly small liberal arts college, maybe four or 5,000. And his daughter says that, yeah, you have three different types of people. You have those who are truly into their academics and don't really care about any, having a social life. You have those who are in serious relationships with, with other people. And then you have those, and a large percentage of them, are involved in this hookup culture. And, and she said, and so many of my friends are, and they hate it, but they continue to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the interesting things to me. We had... Um uh, a senior in high school once asked Lauren and I, so it's the guy's job to text first, right? And I just thought, what? Um, but, but there's this, this sense of, and you talk about this in your book, sex divorced from romance, intimacy, commitment. How, how, did, that, how did that happen? I talk about four issues, uh, but one that's very significant is the um, basically the use of pornography uh, today. You know, when I was in college, which was 40 years ago, uh, if you wanted to watch pornography, you would go to some seedy area of town and where they have a movie theater that showed pornography. And so you just, nobody really ever did it. Uh, then I was talking to a, a, a guy recently who's about 20 years younger than I who, when he was in college, that's when the VHS was, uh, the, you know, the 
the Betamax and all that was where you could go to an adult bookstore and you could rent uh, pornographic material. And he said sometimes we would take them to the fraternity house, but he said, you know, a lot of people really, it was kind of embarrassing. And so we, it really never was something that was that prevalent. Well, today, a student, whether it's his computer or his smartphone, can get pornography 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so what's happened is, is that particularly young men, uh, it's a real problem in their lives. And it impacts the way that they view women. Uh, it impacts the way they view their sexuality. And it impacts what their expectations. They, they expect young girls to be porn stars. And the problem with it is, and this is what counselors have shared with me, is that it is so easy to access and it's so easy to hide that, that you can be so involved with pornography and nobody knows it. It's, it's a secret that you keep until it finally comes out. I had a, a lady share with me how, and this was after I'd given a talk at the Eminem O'Neill Library, and she came up and said, we have a, a, a friend, um, she and her husband, just recently got married. I don't know if it was recent. I don't know how long ago it's been. And they both were virgins. They both saved themselves. Except on their wedding night, the, the man couldn't perform sexually. And he confided he'd been hooked on pornography for a couple of years and nobody knew it. And I mean, what a tragic thought. What a tragic thing for this young, young couple. That is a huge issue today. And it's having an impact and nobody really talks about it. Parents don't talk to their children about it. And yet, my son, my oldest son, has told me, yeah, that my, my friends watch it on their, their, their iPhone. That's an issue. Now, this, this, I don't know whether this will surprise you or not, but, but alcohol on college campuses has always been there. It's always been an issue. It's all, I mean, it's always been something college students do. But what's happening now is you're seeing binge drinking in such a way that, 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 that kids today are going out with the intention of getting very intoxicated. And not only on the weekends, but what they'll do is that what you're seeing is this trend is they'll study, they'll do their work, and then they'll go out at 10 o'clock at night, and they'll drink heavily every single day. And I go in and talk about so many students who end up hooking up, and they don't even remember what they'd done the night before, and it was all because of alcohol. Third thing is the peer pressure. This is particularly tough with freshmen when they show up on campus for the first time, and they realize that if I'm going to have an active social life, I've got to be part of this hookup culture. And we all know that, that peer pressure can be very powerful. But this is particularly true when, when you show up on campus as a freshman. And then the final thing, and this is, this is something that I think is steadily, you see this have, have been happening over the last 50 years, is the change in people's view of what is moral, sexual morality. Because historically, we got our morals, our sexual mores from the Judeo-Christian tradition which was an outward, objective, moral standard that had been given to us by, by God. And we submit our lives to it. And when we do, our lives flourish. But what's happened is, is that instead of having an objective moral standard today, you see it, people's morality is now subjective. In other words, college students particularly, they begin to realize, I've got to establish and create my own morality. Um, 
And they look to their heart. They look to their feelings. They look to their desires. And it's like, I come, this is my morality. And you may not agree with it. You may have your own morality. And what you see is that when you have that view, and that is pretty much the view of most, so many college students today, therefore, what you see is that this approach to morals makes few moral demands on your life. And if you think about it, it's also a theological statement. It's saying, God does not really care how I channel my desires and my passions. And so those four issues in combination have led us to this point, I think. Yeah, I mean, do you think that, unfortunately, a lot of times it, it, it seems to go full circle? Um, and I wish it didn't have to. I wish it didn't take um, the traumatic events that, that happened to make it happen. Uh, but when I was at UVA, one of the grad students did a, um, a report on this, this very issue. They did their, their big thesis on it. And uh, what they found was uh, of the 1,000 women uh, that they surveyed who uh, were no longer virgins, over 90% wished that they could go back, yeah. wished that they could go back. And so, but unfortunately, it, 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 it took um, that lie and then actually saying that, you know, that, uh, that, it, that it was a lie and the actual experience of it that has kind of brought them back to that place. But for a lot of them, they, they were sort of left in a place of despair. Like, yeah. well, well, what do I do now? Um, yeah, that's what uh, Dr. Freitas has, has discerned is that so many college students today are just very unhappy. Uh, they're very unhappy with their lives. They're very unhappy with some of the decisions and choices they've made. Because deep down, both young women and young men are realizing that they want to have quality relationships. They want to have romance. They want to have uh, someone that they can spend time with and not just, just you know, hooking up. And so that's kind of the bottom line right now is, is that, that the, um, the ultimate outcome is that students are very unhappy they're finding that their lives in college are very meaningless and that the, their relationships are very disappointing. And so it's an interesting uh, uh, time uh, for college students today. Yeah, do you think that um, as, as that has lived out, what I've noticed, uh, we have a friend who is an undergraduate at a large state university right now and just amazed by the things that she will put up on her social media page like Facebook um, one of the things, just within months of arriving at this campus, um, uh, said something about uh, uh, what gentlemen, fill in the blank fraternity, are that at least they put their shirts on to walk you down the steps and uh, the next morning. Wow. Uh, and so just, I mean, here was this young woman putting it out for the whole world to see. Is that, is that, a, comp is, is that a sense in our culture that if we just keep telling ourselves it's just sex, it's just sex, that it'll be all right. I mean, not really, so there are those who really aren't coming to grips with that it's, it's always more than just sex. Yeah, I, I think that, that based on the, the research that I did is that uh, young women, probably more than young men, and, and this, is, this is an interesting part of, of what I discovered, is that young women are really maturing a lot faster than, than young men. Uh, I've even had breakfast with David Zoll uh, a couple of weeks ago, who I think, you know, Paul's son, who's at the University of Virginia. 
And he was just sharing with me that, uh, that what he has noticed, and, and it's, it's almost like it's a trend, that you're seeing young men uh, mature later and later in life. And they get to be 25 and 28 years old, and they're, they're, they're really struggling to kind of find themselves. And it's created a real frustration. I, I've had a number of men say their daughters are just very frustrated that there aren't a lot of young men out there who you know, are really gentlemen, uh, who are really serious, who have a maturity to their lives. And so I, I think that's a part of, I think that's a, a, an issue as well. And so for us, I've got two, two young men, uh, two young sons, uh, both teenagers, is that, that there needs to be a real focus on uh, really investing in the lives of our, our boys and, and, and seeing them, you know, teaching them what does it really mean to be a man. Right. Yeah, you mentioned in your book that no one, no one really dates uh, anymore. That, uh, you know, I, if I'd only known then what I know now, um, you know, I have this Bible study on Monday nights with guys in their 20s and, and a lot of attractive Christian women in their 20s. And I've just, just sort of said, you'll never get a better opportunity. Like, here it is. <laughs> and, uh, and I've also, you know, what I've come to realize is these girls will tell me, I mean, these knockout gorgeous girls who love the Lord, if, if a guy asked them on a date, they'd say yes. They'd say yes. And the guys, of course, are afraid of rejection and all that kind of stuff. But... Um, you know, I mean, it sort of has resorted to, you know, the basis of a relationship being sort of we go out a little bit, we fool around, we text. Um, but what is it that's, that's, I mean, in addition to things like pornography, um, and I guess this is the turning point in our conversation where we take it to, what can we do to help grow, I mean, even faith aside, emotionally mature sons and daughters? Well... One of the things that I have clearly recognized, and even as a parent myself, is I think we do a really poor job in teaching and talking to our kids about uh, their sexuality. And you know, thinking back uh, as a as a Christian, I think that we at some point in time decide that you know we need to explain to our children uh, what basically what sexual intercourse is and that and so we explain that and and uh, often depending on their age they think it's this horrible they can't believe that, that, right. that people would do that and um, and then as time goes by we you know and we teach and this is how you have children this is how you conceive right. and then we tell them if we have a biblical worldview that and you don't have sex until you're married and that's kind of how we leave it with 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 our kids mm-hmm. and I think Probably uh, the best chapter in the book is the chapter on God's purpose for sex. I don't think we have done a good job explaining that to our kids because when you really understand it, you, you, you see the absolute beauty of God's plan. And just to kind of maybe just share a couple of thoughts uh, on that, what, it, you know, what I came up with, and it, this was very educational for me, but in the Old Testament, whenever you read in English where it says, and by the way, there's a lot of sex in the Old Testament. But whenever you read where it says uh, a husband has relations with his wife, it says, usually the English, it says, he lay with her. Or some translations say, he had relations with her. And the Hebrew word that is, is, the, is the Hebrew word yada, Y-A-D-A. In English, we, you know, that means empty, boring conversation, but in Hebrew... In Hebrew, yada means 
To know, to be deeply known, and to be deeply respected. And there's a parallel word that's often paired with it, and it's the word said, which means friend or deep friendship and loyalty and devotion. And so what you, what you learn is that in the Old Testament that you see very clearly God's purpose for our sexuality is to, it's, it's the means to have, to be deeply known by someone else. And that person being your very best friend in the covenant of marriage. Ironically, and I was reading it this morning, in 2 Samuel, when David goes, when he calls to have Bathsheba come, and the word, I read it this morning, says, and he lay with her. The Hebrew word is not yada. It's a different word. It's the word shakab, which means just sexual intercourse. And it always has a, a, another parallel word to it, sikba, which means a mission. And so basically what that means is exchanging bodily fluids. I don't mean to be crass, but that's really kind of what it means. And I share that because that's what, is, that's what hookup sex is. Yeah. And that's basically what animals do. And, and we need to teach our children about this. What is God's purpose? Now, the, 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 the thing that, that probably moves me more than anything is what Jesus said, quoting from Genesis. In Matthew 19, he says, He created us male and female. And then he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and will cleave, that's what the King James says, cleave to his wife. The more modern translations say be joined to. But that word cleave is a Hebrew word. And it's a powerful word. It, mean, it literally means it's like gluing something together that you can't pull apart. But it means absolute union, total union. It means, someone, it means that I belong completely and exclusively and totally and permanently to you. And in fact, that's what sex is all about. It's a, it's a cleaving mechanism. It's a way that we can say to somebody else, I belong completely and permanently to you, all of me, everything. Mm-hmm. And Growing up, I never heard any of that. I never heard anything about God's purpose, God design, God's design for our sexuality. And that has moved a lot of people. And so I, th- I think that we need to teach our children that. They need to know that. Now, also, there's, and I, I'll say this about my oldest son who's not here. He'll be, going to, he'll be a freshman in college next year. But he and I and several other dads and their sons who were all seniors in high school went through the book together. And it really shook them up. And these are all athletes. They're, I mean, it really shook them up. Uh, particularly about, in the book I talk about, so many young men today are graduating from college with a double addiction in their lives. And that is an addiction to pornography and addiction to alcohol. And together, here they are trying to begin their adult lives and maybe start a career, have a, have a spouse, have children. And yet they've dug themselves this really deep hole. And I guess what I'm saying is that this really got these young men attention. It really put a little fear of God in them. And so, and I, I see that as being very healthy, particularly a fear of pornography and a fear of, a, a fear of, a, of becoming an alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, I mean, my, my talk growing up consisted of fire belongs in the fireplace. And... Um, <laughs> 
I mean, that was it. Any more questions? Any questions? No, good. Uh, and I mean, you know, in hindsight, that, I mean, it, it actually made me think a little bit about it that, uh, you know, um, yeah, when fire is outside of the fireplace, things get burned. And, um, but, but there still was not that level. The next thing that happened was uh, some of y'all have read Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. Uh, so Josh McDowell was speaking, and, uh, and my mom said, well, let's go listen to Josh McDowell. He's going to be nearby. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll go listen to Josh McDowell. And we go, and uh, I felt like they had locked the doors behind us. And I could tell, like, every mom with their teenage children were there, and I was like, something's going on. And he proceeded to an hour and 20 minutes on sexual, sexually transmitted diseases, uh, uh, complete with uh, some photographs. And uh, at that point, I thought, we are all surely going to die. Uh, it worked. Uh, it worked. But at the same time, I mean, it, it has to be more than just uh, you might get an STD. Uh, you really ought not to. And what I found with a lot of young folks is that even if they come to the right place where they say, I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't have sex until I get married, um, you ask them why, they're at a loss. Yeah. Just, I, I just shouldn't. Yeah. And having to do that counseling on the other end of, you know, um, we all, you know, on that wedding day, we all bring baggage into our marriage. And unfortunately, some people are bringing U-Haul trailers. And um, that's true. And, and I mean, sexually speaking, no, sexual true. baggage and in uh, trying. Uh, I'm amazed by the number of, of, of guys and girls that I'm talking to that. I mean, just the amazing impact that uh, pornography, not just on men, but on women. Yes. Uh, on women. You mentioned Naomi Wolf uh, saying uh, in, uh, I guess it was the New York Times, she said that, you know, everyone's afraid that pornography would turn men into raving wolves sexually, but it actually has, has done the opposite. Yeah. It's done the opposite. Yeah, I talk a lot about, and I, I read a number of books on pornography, and I, I don't think we realize uh, how it leads to sexual dysfunction. And I think one of the reasons is, is that, that modern people just find it hard to believe that, that something that you take into your mind will have such an impact uh, versus something you ingest into your body, whether it's drugs, alcohol, you know, tobacco, whatever. And so they just don't think, they think this is more recreation, it's entertainment, and that it really can't harm me. And yet, and I, I don't really know, th this is not in the book, but last night, I was watching, um, I like to watch the History Channel, and they, was, they had, believe it or not, they had a, a, an advertisement on Viagra. And they, this, this woman, this attractive woman says, 50% of men over the age of 40 suffer from erectile dysfunction. Now, I, I don't know where she got her information, but in talking to a urologist, he says most, of, most men who, who suffer from that it's psychological, it's not blood flow, it's all psychological. And I am convinced that pornography plays a role in this somewhere because that's what the research is showing. And, and so it's, it's a very, very serious issue that really needs to be discussed with our kids. Yeah, so um, in, the, in the next five minutes, and then we'll open up some questions. Um, you know, the, the church has largely failed uh, to, to talk about this. I mean, I do think the Advent does some, we do some really good things. I know that um, uh, we'll have some doctors and we'll, we'll do a, um, what, do we, what do we call the, what do we call it? We do it every year. It's got a real catchy title. 
Well, clearly you're all familiar with it. Uh, <laughs> Charlie Sharp, are you here? What's it called? Right. Well, Charlie, Charlie's Charlie's done it, but um, uh, so uh, so we. What's it called? The Bible, talks the Bible talks about that. Thank you, Kevin. Right before you leave for Dallas. Awesome. <laughs> In the clutch, last minute. Oh, great. So um, I mean, we, we really are. But really, where it happens is at home. Yes. Uh, and and especially moms and dads. Now, granted, uh, you know, there may be. Uh, do you think that there's part of it though that? sexual brokenness amongst parents and there's a sense of guilt that well what do I have to say to them I'll feel like a hypocrite you know that's a that's a great question I, I, I do think that it really does start at home I, I think the church can do a good job the, the last I think the, the, the last place you want to look to is the school because they the, I mean the, their, their perspective is so and worldview is so different but I, I do think it has to start with the home, and I, I, I do believe very strongly uh, about discussing, like what we just went over, what is, what is God's design? What is his intent? Um, you know, where, is, where is true happiness and true fulfillment and self-satisfaction? Where is that really found? There's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of spiritual issues involved here. Uh, and yet I, I find when it comes to, to sexuality, and I'll even admit, even in our home, it, it's, it's very, dip, my wife's much better at this than I, it's difficult to talk to your children about their sexuality. It's, it's uncomfortable, it's difficult. Um, maybe one of the reasons I wrote a book would make it a little easier for me to, to, to <laughs> here, read this. Uh, <laughs> book on tape, they can just yeah, you know, <laughs> play it, and there's dad's voice. Uh, but you know, there, there's one thing I, in fact, I'm gonna, can I read? Yes, I read please it. do. This, this to me uh, is a very powerful part of the book. And this, this could, could really create some really good discussion, I think. Because you may be at, this, this is really, I'm going to read it to you. This really is a um, real compliment to women. This is the eighth chapter. To conclude this chapter, I want to look at some words from an op-ed piece written in Newsweek magazine several years ago entitled, Modesty is Sexy, Really. The author is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist George Will, and he critiques a book by Wendy Shallot, A Return to Modesty, Discovering the Lost Virtue. Shallot questions whether women are better off now than they were before the sexual revolution. She contends women are naturally modest. It's a part of their wiring, so to speak. Sexual modesty is a reflex that arises from their femininity, and women should stubbornly resist the sexual presumptuousness that men display towards them. Shallot says that young men have no clue how to relate to real women. A strong woman, this is, should say to the world, I'm worth waiting for, so I'm not going to give myself to you, not to you, not to you, nor you either. But this type of thinking is so foreign to young women who have been swept up by the hookup culture. Shallot believes it's time for women to return to sexual modesty. Women should be proud to be sexually hesitant, and their hesitancy should arise from the mature hope for a dignified relationship with one man. She makes an observation that is worthy of bold print. I got it all boldly put, uh, printed in here. What women will and will not permit does have a profound way of influencing behavior of an entire society. This profound statement is a real compliment to the power and command women can have in this culture. They particularly have the ability to influence the behavior of immature college men. Shallot believes if they would form a cartel of virtue, it would lead to educating young men about what it means to, be a, to have a meaningful relationship with a woman. 
They might also learn that a woman's body and sexual intimacy is something that is considered to be very sacred. Women would no longer be an object for men's pleasure, but persons of great value and worth. Shallot concludes her article by making a compelling argument that women who are modest and moral are the sexiest. Ironically, men find them to be incredibly attractive. And then finally, Shallot, who apparently doesn't speak from a Christian perspective, appeals to our logic when it comes to sexual restraint. She says, saving yourself sexually may be the proof of God because it means that we must have been designed in such a way that when we humans act like animals without any restraints and without any rules, we just don't have as much fun nor find life to be very meaningful. So that right there, and this is not to say women are the problem. I think that's not it at all, but I'm not so sure that they are key to, to, the, to the real solution. solution. Yeah. Okay. Questions? Yes, Okay. Not so much here, but it's starting. I'm starting to hear it here too. That people will, I'll say, "How are your children?" And they'll say, "Oh, well, my son is living with his girlfriend, or my daughter is living with her boyfriend," and with no shame. Yeah. You know, you would have never discussed it or what. I got so frustrated with a friend of mine from Chicago that I told her I would kill my. Daughter's, <laughs> my daughter's boyfriend. If they got married, very young. They got married very young. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I find that parents are very—they're um, finding that to be okay. Yeah, I, I think that really does go back to what I shared earlier about how our our view of of, of uh, morality has changed, and that it is now subjective. I mean. You know, what's true for you and what's right and moral to you may not be right for your friend in Chicago. And what she will tell you, you need to be tolerant of me because we're, that, that's the great virtue today is everybody needs to be tolerant of everybody else. And it, it, is, it is very frustrating. There's, there's no doubt about it. Laura. Hi. Yes. Hi, Richard. Um, I, thank you for writing this book. And I think, did I hear that it was given to all Mountain Brook high school families? That's not my yeah. real question. I just well, I, I'm too. glad you brought that. Can I, can I make a quick comment on that? Yes. Because, yeah, that has caused kind of a stir. We, we had a man who read the book and was so disturbed by what he read and because he has children in the Mount Brook school system and because he, is, he, lo he grew up there, he loves the city of Mount Brook. He, he came in and wrote a check and bought 2,000 books and paid us, and he brought the, the mailing labels and were sent to every parent uh, who has a child at Mount Brook Junior High or Mount Brook High School. And I'm sure people, and there was a little notice on it. Of, and and it, that created a stir primarily. How did you get everybody's address? That was kind of the thing that yeah. disturbed people more than anything. The else. internet. I, th I mean, everybody. Yeah. I think it's good, though, because I, I don't know. I mean, from Andrew, we don't have that much experience in this, but we are, you know, Sometimes young people talk to us. It's weird, but um, but I think it's starting a little bit earlier than you know. I feel like a lot of what I'm reading is that it's starting a lot earlier than college. So there's a pretty strong, not great foundation before they even get there, and yeah. so then they're on their own for the first time, really on their own. You know, they're given this independence with these smartphones real early. Um, and, uh, you know, I was reading, it was, just to your point, this poor boy, I think he was 11, and he had been exposed to so much pornography on his phone that 
you know, he's in counseling. He may never be able to look at like a beautiful young woman as what they are. Beautiful, just beautiful, naturally beautiful young women. And he, and that's 11. And so not to be so scary, but at the same time, I, I do, I was appreciative when I saw that, that maybe more families would be talking about this with their children you know, we're raising three gar- girls, and yeah. one of the best books I've read on this, um, just through the lens of raising young women, is Girls on the Edge. I don't know if you've read that. It's not, not Christian in nature, but, you know, it, it does talk about some of these things, and I don't know. I'm just, what, what do you think? Did you find in any of your, your research, I guess my real question after all this talking is, you know, did you find that it is actually earlier and it's kind of easier to talk about it at the college level? Or what yeah, do you think? It, it, it is, even though the, there is, and if you have high school students, you'll, you'll recognize, other than maybe the prom or, or homecoming, that there's not much dating going on. Uh, so whether that's, I mean, I, I think they need to learn how to date. But yes, I th- the, the, what you just shared about pornography is, is, a, is a real problem for, young, for, for teenagers, for Eighth graders, ninth graders, tenth graders. Everybody's got a phone. Everybody's got a smartphone, and it's uh, so the, the, the problem is going. You're going to see it um, appear in more and more young people's lives, because in talking to a counselor, a really good counselor, he says that pornography is the 500-pound gorilla of addictions, because it's so easy, as I said earlier, to get in, to, to to be exposed to it in secret. And it's so difficult to to get to get off of it to to break the addiction, and so yeah, it really concerns. What what can be happening to our 13, 14, 15 year olds? What they're what they're viewing on their smartphones? Yes, sir. Yeah, this is not so much of a question, but hopefully something to bring everybody's attention to that I think is an important consideration in this whole issue, particularly with regards to young people. And it would be my criticism of our colleges and universities, a primary agent for assistance to parents to raising their children, and their lack of ability to continue to keep in touch with one of the, I would say, at least 50% of their responsibility, and that is to recognize that they're helping people grow up. They are not just passing tests. They are not just adding knowledge. And I think the pressure for good grades in universities is one of those things that's contributing to this behavior because these are escape mechanisms that the students are engaging themselves in. I think we need to work with the universities with which we are associated or colleges and continue to press them actually to recognize that responsibility for assisting in the growing up of fine young people. Uh, Richard, go ahead and, and this will be the last one, but if you want to two, stick around for a little bit. Yeah, you two, can. two quick points uh, as, as it relates to that. I, I agree. Oz Guinness says what happens is our, 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 higher, uh, our colleges uh, are no longer, they're, they're, they're more concerned with what they're learning and not so concerned with what kind of people they're becoming. And that's changed over the last 50 years. The other thing, just a, a good example of that is, is in the book, David, I shared from David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times. He says that, that we don't know how to talk about character and virtue anymore. And if you ask a young person, you discuss with them about what, is, what does it mean to have character, they, they don't know how to respond. And he, he gave an example, he says, and for instance, he says, I spoke to a group of professors at Princeton 
And he said, I asked them about, are you teaching your, 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 your students about how to be people of character? And they said, no, we're not. We're not even sure how, how we probably should be, but we don't even know how to do that. And that's, that's kind of referring to what you're saying. Yeah. Well, on that helpful note, I'm just uh, um, Melody, I'm gonna let you have the last word. Okay. Um, being a mother of young children, a working mother, and a child of a divorced family, um, between the, this sort of culture you're speaking about and the baby boomers, you kind of get to see some, and observe some different things. One is that everything's instant gratification now. Between screens, I try and make waffles with the children instead of microwaving them. Teaching them how to have relationships. And I think this is a generation where they don't do things with people. It's just, it's gotta feel good, nobody loses. And so these girls go to college and they think a relationship's just sex and feeling good. And not, you've gotta work on it. And um, that some marriages do succeed. And a lot of our parents have been divorced and you know, we can try at marriages and relationships and they don't all fail. Um, and also that as a woman, it, you can have, be vulnerable, you can be a mother and not just that you have to have a hard exterior and shell and be equal to a man. Um, you know, I think that they're scared of getting hurt. Mm -hmm. and, um, and really in the end, a true good um, relationship is worth having and working on. Amen. Well said. Yeah, uh, well, a good good start to an important conversation. Richard, God bless you, friend. Thank Glad you. you were here. Uh, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.